Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Really excited to bring you our conversation today with the 1985 Australian Open Men Doubles Champion with a former All-Star All-American ITA National Player of the Year at the University of Tennessee. Of course, you may know him better for his roles coaching Pete Sampras and Roger Federer, as well as his role on the Tennis Channel. Of course, I'm talking about Paul Anacone, a phenomenal uh, mind in our game of tennis from tactics, analytics, to the larger trends going on in our sport how the game has sped up, slowed down, become more physical over time, what skills it takes nowadays to succeed as a modern player versus what it took to be successful back in the 2000s, the 90s, the 80s. And we dive into all of those topics and more. Of course, we also spend a little bit of time talking about his thoughts on the coronavirus pandemic and how it will influence our sport moving forward. But it's a really fascinating conversation, the sort of intellectualism you can only achieve when you speak with someone with the depth of experience as Paul Anacone. Before we get to that interview, a couple of things I want to let you guys know. One, if you have missed any of our Cracked Interviews podcasts over the past couple of weeks, although I know you listeners haven't as you are obviously subscribed, but Christian, Claire Lou, Dennis Kudla, Bethany Maddox-Sands, Chris Woodruff, them and more, all rocking and rolling on that podcast. We've also had people from the tennis media world like John Wertheim, uh, Ben Rothenberg, Steve Weissman. Is Mark Lucero media? Is he a coach? If I call him media, he'd probably be like, no, I'm a coach. But if I call him a coach, he'd be like, what, you don't consider me part of the media? So we'll say coach and media member, Mark Lucero, and so many other great guests, Andy Katz, of course, as well, to talk NCA. Uh, we're rocking and rolling across all three of our podcasts, Great Shot Podcast, Mini Breaks. Keep those going as well because we want to provide you all with the sort of entertainment you deserve during this time of crisis, provide you guys some sort of outlet uh, to just escape all the stresses we are all feeling. So uh, be on the lookout for all of that. If you haven't checked out our YouTube channel, please, please, please go give that a look. I mean, seriously, super producer Daniel Westoff has just been up to incredible things on there. We launched two new series over the past month, overserved our look at all of the comedy that happens day in, day out, throughout the week uh, in the tennis world. I think we're up to four up episodes there now, Westoff. Give me a shake of the head. I think it is our fourth episode. It's hard to keep track because uh, we're just having so much fun with that series. We also launched our first episode <clears throat> excuse me, of CR Classics, our look at some of the best matches in tennis history that is a podcast and the gsp feed it's also a video which has linked in highlights of the match all of the things we talk about jamie mcdonald in that podcast and more covered so be sure to go give those a look and of course segments from each of those can be found on our youtube channel as well as our social media channels twitter instagram facebook it's all at cracked rackets i'm at great shot pod shout out to our patreon subscribers who get first look at all of that sort of content and by the way thank you you to all of them for their continued support. One last note before we get into the podcast. Uh, the audio quality, I'm not going to say it's not good because everything Daniel Westhoff and Max Fligner produce is good. Uh, and this is on me. It just screwed up on my end. Unfortunately, I'm stuck in the 20, 21st century, but in the, the aughts decade, we'll say. And so, you know, I still have speakerphone capability. I can record and have a backup going. But unless you're an Apple product nowadays, I have troubles holding on to the signal. And so the audio quality is a little spotty in this podcast at times. We do apologize for that. That being said, it's Paul Anacone. Anytime you get the 
chance to chat with Paul Anacone, you run the show. So with that in mind, let's get right to that conversation, listeners, with that we had with the one and only Paul Anacone. Joining us on the podcast today, you, of course, will recognize his voice from the work he does at Tennis Channel. I feel like he doesn't get enough credit. The former 1985 Australian Open Grand Slam doubles champion. Of course, he also coached players like Pete Sampras and Roger Federer. Paul Anacone, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I've gotten plenty of credit, so I'm not worried about that. But glad you brought up the 85... uh Australian Open title. It's a fond memory, and that was a long time ago, but still a good one for me. If I was a Grand Slam champion, I would make sure that was the introduction for me, especially on Tennis Channel. You'd be like, guys, you know, we're doing the best of all time, but you're looking at a champion. That's right. Got to, every once in a while, I got to remind people, but try, <laughs> you know, just try just to do it in a way that can uh, can be digested easily. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've got the chance to consider Steve Weissman a friend. And, you know, I feel like he's the sort of guy you'd be like, Steve, Steve, it's Grand Slam champion. He'd be like, oh, of course, Paul. Like, of course. And so. Uh, Always give Steve a hard time. Why not? Exactly. And so, you know, the the question I, you know, again, thank you for taking the time to chat with us. I think the question that's on everyone's mind right now, the coronavirus uh, impacting all of our daily lives, and certainly it has impacted the tennis world. The most recent news as of us talking, the ATP and WTAs being delayed uh, back the start date to July 13th. In your opinion, it, it everything's very tentative right now, right? There's just still so much in the air. That's not a definitive start date, is it? No, I think what the tours um, now are trying to do is kind of do things in segments, right? They're trying to give themselves a decent amount of uh, window so that there can be some notice for the tournaments, the proprietors of the business uh, uh, that, that have to operate so that they know what to expect and what's going on and to also let the fans and sponsors and players know you know, that right now it's uh, it's a bit of a hold. And first it was the clay court season and you know, now it's through the grass season. So I'm, I'm assuming that uh, I'm assuming by towards the end of this month, we're going to have a pretty good idea about what uh, we can realistically expect, if anything, this uh, this summer here in the States. Mm-hmm. And I feel like these times, it, you know, the, the idea of unionization amongst players is not new. And I'm certain, you know, you're well aware pushes in the 70s, 80s, 90s. There have been multiple pushes, but it does feel like given the fact that, uh, you know, so many of these players are individual contractors with there being no tennis at all with something like this, it's put a spotlight on those efforts. Do you think this time will be different? Do you think given, you know, the dire needs of so many players and just the way this uh, pandemic has impacted a complete it caused a complete stoppage of tennis do you think those calls will be for unionization will be any stronger now will have any further lasting impact than usual i I don't know i think it's like you said it's been a conversation a number of different times i'm not quite sure how uh, it would affect this situation um i think you know right now you know there's unionization for the players but there's also taking the players out of it there is um kind of governing body issues that are so splintered right you have the atp the wta you have 
the four majors, which are their individual entities, then you have the ITF as well. So there's a lot of splintering within tennis. Um, I think, you know, when you come through adversity and you see scenarios like this, conversations do come up to how do you avoid the hardship for so many. And, and look, um, you know, the top players make enough money where it's not an issue, but there are a lot of rank-and-file players that are going to be hit pretty hard by this. Um, and I think just like the rest of the folks in society, our, our economy, our tennis economy, is going to have to be creatively jump-started again. Um, that'll take some good thinking and some bright minds and some creativity. Um, and, and whether or not a unionized player group could have a better effect on that, I, I don't know. Um, but I, I think that that topic will... Um, probably resonate. One of the reasons it'll resonate is because there's a lot of free time for a lot of people right now. Um, but I, I don't know that it would clear anything up. It might give you a more uniform version of player needs, um, which is always good to have a streamlined version of what the players want. But uh, as you and I know, there's a lot of other things going on in the tennis business um, that also need to be looked at. So we'll see. We'll see if uh, players keep talking about it. We'll see if um, it, it kind of resonates and lasts through this pandemic. Another idea, and this is not a new one either, is yet just a tennis commissioner. And not to this will not get political, but the president of the United States met with so many uh, sporting heads, commissioners over the past weekend, and tennis didn't have a representative at the table. And that's sort of embarrassing, the idea that we don't have – you know, it's an international sport. And as you mentioned, there's so many different business interests from tournaments to players, sponsors, on and on and on. But the idea of a point person for a response like this so that you don't have – you know, the French Open coming out and making their own statements and then the U.S. Open responding. And now things seem to be slightly more coordinated, but just a central figure. Is that impossible, the idea of a tennis commissioner, given, as you've mentioned, all of the differing interests in our sport? I, I think it's a, uh, it's a great vision. It's a great wish list. It's a nice romantic idea. But, you know, knowing the industry as I do, and I, I've been around a long time and I've been on the player council. I've been on the ATP player board of representatives for a few terms. So I, I've got a pretty decent handle on um, how the structure is set up. Uh, I, I don't know how you do it based on its current structure. Um, it is a battle of territory and territories. Um, when you look at the major events in and of themselves, you know, they are um, – businesses of hundreds of millions of dollars individually those tournaments um and then to try to figure out how to have someone that has the best wishes of those tournaments plus the best wishes of the other tournaments um also understanding the needs of what the players have and the fact that you mentioned it it's an international individual sport that that's a huge liability when you think about trying to have a very centralized um, governance and a very centralized leadership team. Uh, the teams and the leagues within our st in the states are, the, uh, are that. They're in our states, and the leagues are really powerful. Tennis is global. Even the golf tour has the European PGA Tour and the U.S. PGA Tour. So tennis encompasses the globe, so it makes it really, really challenging. Um, but as you mentioned, I think for a nostalgic and a wish list, sure, that would be great. I'm just not quite sure how to figure that model out. 
As you mentioned, we all have time on our hands, so I'll get to thinking. Yeah, so you you can come up with the answer in the next couple of weeks. Just let me know, all right? It's like a three-week problem, right? There's no way people have been thinking about it that long. Um, no, but, it, yeah, it, it's certainly on the wish list as well, you know, things things as well as uni- a universal basic income for players, the mechanics behind that. All of these things are being tossed around, of course, and, you know, you guys have done an excellent job discussing that and more keeping us all entertained on Tennis Channel. And, you know, I'm curious for you uh i'm sure you were planning to be at indian wells go to miami but how have you you know what's your life been looking like how have you adjusted through this pandemic um look i think you know so much of what we all strive for in life is control right control of our routines our destinies uh, of our work time uh, of our leisure time and you know and some of the things we combat with control is also fear you know the fear of the unknown and those two things that are key components of our life are being tested right here because we don't have control we've been asked to do things we're not used to doing and there's a lot of fear because no one seems to know exactly what this disease does there's so much unknown information out there Um, and one of the challenges that i've found actually is getting the balance of enough information to understand what's going on and not too much information to where you think things are very bleak. Um, it's going to be a challenging time. We're going, we are losing far too many lives already um, in the United States and around the world. So the loss of one life is a tragedy uh, enough. But when you look at the numbers already, it's it's horrific. And when you combine the loss of life with that fear and then you add on we have lost control of what our lives are going to be like that is a tough recipe to kind of wrestle with and that's what we're all asked to do right now so i think you know what i've found in terms of commonality of message has been the most simplistic thing is the more we can self-isolate the more patient we can be uh, the higher the likelihood things will get back to where it's more manageable and we will be able to regain some of our control and there will be less fear and then hopefully there will be less of the unknown because it will give our very smart scientific world the opportunity to dive in and figure out how to really find a good recipe to combat this illness. So it's a time thing, it's a loss of control thing, and it's a fear thing. Um, but I think, look, we've come through a lot in this country and a lot in our own communities, and this is another one of those challenges. You know, this is where we've got to really dig in and be patient and, and find ways to get back to simplistic themes, and that's what I've done. I'm spending time taking walks with my wife, um, trying to take care of things that I want to do around the house, take care of my own health and well-being, um, trying to spend time uh, looking at the health and well-being of my own mind, my own body, and being informed enough so that I get what's happening, but don't panic about it. Yeah. Look, a wise man once said having a long-term objective as well as a series of short-term plans is vital. Uh, that wise man, of course, was you, Paul, in your book. Uh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> and so, yes, and of course, that book up to the top of my list of things I will be reading during this time period. Um, I do want to move on from coronavirus-related topics, as I know, uh, you know, of course, that's on all the top of our minds. But since we have you here, I want to ask you a little bit about yourself, and I feel like another hidden gem in the history of Paul Anacone, the fact that, and I apologize, 
apologize for swearing, but you were a really f***ing good college tennis player. And I think that's an understatement. You know, that 1984 season, I believe, in particular, you put together something like a 51-3 and season. Uh, for those who may not know about your pathway, why did you elect to go to college? And, you know, what was your experience like there? How did it help prepare you for the pros? Well, look, I wasn't a good enough junior to to just jump into the pros, and without me having my three years at University of Tennessee under the auspices of uh, my late great coach, Mike DePalmer Sr., who just passed away a couple months ago, um, I wouldn't have been able to do what I've done in tennis. Coach DePalmer really helped me um, understand what it was like to be um, a professional and and helped me understand the discipline that was necessary to go from not only just a good college player, but to be a good pro and, and to understand kind of two really important words. You know, I mentioned being a professional, but the two words really responsibility and accountability, the responsibility of doing this as a job and being accountable to myself and, and the ability to take control of it myself and manage my own life and, and career. And Coach DePalmer helped me understand that as I got through my years at University of Tennessee. And I think that that allowed me the time to physically and mentally mature so that I could let my game get good enough where it was sustainable out on the tour. But um, look, my days at University of Tennessee um, were spectacular. I wouldn't trade them for anything. I and uh, I do want to ask you a follow-up about your thoughts on college tennis now, but let's, I'm going to dive deep into your time because I'm a college tennis fanatic. Uh, you know, 82, Mike Leach, Michigan, that's my school, so of course that season near and dear to my heart. But, you know, for you, 1984, you're the number one seed heading into the event. That three, or the straight set loss to Barry Moore, I want to say, of Auburn, you know, does it still kill you now? I was able to take that and grow a lot. I was crushed when I lost, and Barry uh, just played a better match. He just beat me. Um, but then two months later, I took it out on the pro tour and, and, and started playing some very good tennis very quickly, and that erased the memory. Two months later, I qualified for Wimbledon and got to the quarterfinals, so that really helped, <laughs> that helped stop the bleeding. <laughs> you know, when you when you go look at tennis matches and you look at great athletes, it's one thing to win, but it's another thing to be able to win when you're supposed to win. And that's one of the things that I've become such a um, huge fan of. All these great players that are expected to win all the time, and they do. And, and that is really incredible um, to think about because it's very different when you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. But when you flip it around and you're Nadal or Djokovic or Federer or Serena Williams and you're supposed to win, um, you only make news generally when you lose, that's a different landscape. And that, that is uh, something that all great athletes do so incredibly well. And for me, um, I really take a lot of notice of athletes that are able to do that and then able to sustain that throughout their career in any sport. 
Yeah, and uh, it's interesting to get back to the college perspective because you look at that era and guys like yourself and, you know, Brad Gilbert, of course, went to Pepperdine, guys like David Wheaton, Paul Harhoos, and eventually Todd Martin, Mal Washington, who all spent time in college, went on to success. Of course, nowadays you see guys like John Isner, Kevin Anderson, of course, Nicole Gibbs, and so many others uh, finding their way on the pro tour why do you think, or I guess, do you think that college remains a viable pathway to the pro circuit? And why do you think so many players, you know, why are those years so helpful? I, I do think it's very viable, you know, and, and I think that, um, look, I, I think it changes throughout generations. But, you know, look at John Isner. Um, he's had a tremendous professional career and, and, and he went to college and, and James Blake also spent a year in college. And I just think that it really helps you mature um, and it helps you understand um, how to grow up a little. That's one thing. And, and the second thing is um, it gives you time. And if you look at all these universities, it gives you time to do a lot of good work to even more be more prepared to go out and play. And if you do that, if you have that time, and you, you have the resources, and I look at the resources of the University of Tennessee, for instance. I mean, I, there was, I, I, I was at want for nothing. I mean, there was everything I needed, strength and conditioning, rehab, physiotherapy, matches, plenty of people to practice with, incredible coaching. Why would you not want to have that and just get better before you jumped off that diving board into the pool of professional tennis? If you're great and you're ready to do it, absolutely go do it. But that's why I think now it's, uh, you know, as tennis is disappearing from our landscape for the time being, you know, I would urge all uh, parents, if you're not sure, universities are a great option. Oh, yeah, and God forbid you should get a free education if you have a scholarship. You know, I mean, there's just so many benefits um, to going through the route of uh, college tennis. So, again, you have to find the right environment that suits you. You know, moving through that part, you talk about the game now and the increased physicality, and you mentioned the weights and the, just the training programs available for you as college athletes. And, you know, I, I don't have the exact number in my head, but I know during the 2010s, the age of the top 100, the average age progressively got higher and higher, and the game has become more and more physical. And I'm curious... Uh, your thoughts on this idea uh do you think at a certain point because you look especially on the atp side in particular uh you look at the guys who have worked their way up the rankings or the younger guys who have had success and it's guys like alex virev or matteo berrettini Pass, uh you know karen hatchinov all of these guys seem to be you know six three six four just physically just you know incredible athletes and do you think the game eventually in the ATP is going to get to the point where you're just going to have to be 6'4 to 6'6 to just physically hang with some of the athletes we're now seeing on tour? I think the average size and strength has has improved. You know, it's like every other sport. I think as you go through eras, um, science and the training and the nutrition, all that stuff gets better. Um, I'm, I'm doing fortunate enough to be working with uh, – David Nankin um, in coaching Taylor Fritz. We worked together to coach Taylor, and Taylor's, you know, 22 years of age. He's about six four, um, and and yeah, he's a big, strong, gangly kid. 
But then there's the other side too. You look at Tommy Paul, who's probably only about six foot or six foot one, um, and he's a tremendous athlete. I, I think that there's plenty of room um, for players of all sizes, but it definitely helps to be bigger and stronger. Um, I think it creates more easy opportunities. It creates a more powerful athlete. But then you look at people like Diego Schwartzman, who's been, you know, knocking on the door of the top ten the last couple of years, who's only about five, seven, five, eight, um, and and he is a great athlete, and he's found a way to make things work for him. So I, I think size and strength has improved. But again, so much of tennis goes back to my philosophy that you mentioned. You know, that I talk about a lot in my book, Shameless Plug, um, which is, you know, seriously, which is knowing your own game and understanding what kind of player you're going to be when you hit that maturity level. Um, and if you know that and you follow a pathway and you understand the kind of game you're going to uh, have as a player, you can kind of structure it so that you play that style of tennis. And, and I think that more. Uh, you know, more emphasis needs to be put on that and less emphasis on you have to be 6'5", otherwise you can't play. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. I mean, there will always be a place, right, for the crafty players, for those who just have the racket skills. Um, but, it, you know, it's fascinating. Guys, I forgot to mention, like, a Daniil Medvedev even, or FAA, who's quietly up there. It just does seem, at a certain point, if you can, you know, hit the serve 125, you can hit the forehand over 100 as well. There's just these physical gifts, and you're right, the game keeps changing. And I'm curious, because, again, you've been around the highest levels of tennis since 1985, and we're doing a series called CR Classics, as so many people are right now, looking at some of the matches in tennis history. And I just watched the 0-1 Wimbledon semifinal between Pat Rafter and Andre Agassi. And I, again, I, I'm wrong, but I'm just going to give my opinion anyways, because that's, you know, it's half the fun. Um, but uh, Andre, I could see succeeding in the modern game, just the way he plays all of the defensive skills, the counterpunching skills, his ability to be on top of the baseline, but still at the baseline. I think all of those skills still apply nowadays. But a guy like Pat Rafter, who, you know, 2001, his serve wasn't was what it was in 97 and 98, but just the the amount of backhand slices and just, you know, sort of floating approach shots. I just feel like there's not a place in the game for that anymore. Tell me why I'm wrong. No, I, I think I, I think the game has evolved in such a way where you're mostly right. Um, I, I think that it's gone to the extreme of that explanation. I don't think it should never happen, which is almost what we see now. Um, I was talking to someone yesterday that asked me about, is there place for a serve and volleyer on tour right now and i said I, I don't know that there's a place for a serve and volleyer on tour if that's all that person can do but i don't think the serve and volleyer should be um like the old tyrannosaurus rex and extinct as well you know i mean i i think that there's a way you can't tell me that if someone has the athletic skills of pat rafter you know <clears throat> or of stefan edberg that there wouldn't be a way to serve and volley once a game you know, or, you know, twice a game. And, and if you do that, in, it has to be the right conditions against the right player. Um, but if you do that, it also gives the returner a totally different perspective, right? Now returners know that people aren't serving volleying basically ever. So, you know, you have a much less complicated train of thought when you're trying to return serve right now. And And if you're playing a great returner, if you take – 
one of their uh, if you add another element to them which they've got to think about which is a serve and volley maybe that creates a little bit of an imbalance once in a while I just think it's gone too far in that direction I think you're right I don't know that you could serve and volley um, in isolation for an entire match successfully anymore but there's definitely room with the right athlete to serve and volley a little bit and that doesn't hardly ever happen and I think some of that's because the return of serve is so great I think some of that is because of the homogenized court and playing conditions you can basically play the same way on every surface now which you couldn't do um, in the generation before this um, and also um, because the players return serve so well. So if you, when you add those things together, it's a very complicated equation. But like I said, I, I believe that there's a way to utilize it a little bit, enough to be an added value and not a detriment. Yeah. Case in point, what Roger Federer has done in these past four seasons, he throws in the serve and volley more frequently, shorten, you know, shortens points. But yeah, I it's interesting that you focus on the return because I also think that's even with uh, you know as someone who is serving and volleying at, at this point the way the game is played on any surface you can stand 12 feet behind the baseline and short of it being Kyrgios or Rayonich or Isner firing a serve at you you can get a fairly clean look and I, I do think that you know I'm glad you point out the return. I do think that is a big difference as well but you talk about all of these services playing the same I guess, and again, in that 0-1 semifinal, I think Agassi slid once, and the response from McEnroe was like, what is he doing? He's like, is this a clay court? I mean, is it part physical training? Is it part the technology? I feel like the courts getting slower has, it's certainly, that's one of the reasons for the increased physicality we're seeing, right? You know, there were players that serve and volleyed, so we haven't seen that. So the reason I bring that up to you is all the players that were growing up for the last 15 years to 20 years have not seen a servant volleyer. So every little kid is watching people play tennis. The best players in the world play from the baseline. So remember when you started sports, what did you do? I can tell you what I did. I watched how McEnroe played. You know, I watched how Michael Jordan played basketball. I watched how all the best players played. And I tried to emulate that. Well, guess what? None of the little kids have seen anybody come to the net in the last almost 20 years. So what coach is going to be coaching a kid to play like that? I don't think very many coaches will look at a kid and go, this is how I want you to play, and then also have enough uh, oomph in their discussions to be able to convince their parents that this is how they're going to teach their 12-year-old or 13-year-old when their parents are only seeing everyone stay at the baseline. So my point is, the kids have not seen this modeled for them in a very long time. So when you add that to exactly what you said, which is slower courts, a little bit heavier ball, better athletes, better returners of serve, different kind of rackets and strings so you can return better and you can return with more rotation on the ball so it's dipping more, which would make it hollier, uh, harder to volley. All of those little ingredients add up to what we've got today. And, and I, don't, I, you know, I can't put my finger on just one thing. I can't say it's just because they're better athletes. I, I can't say that because I don't believe that in my heart. I think the athletic abilities are phenomenal, but I also think it's got to do with all the other stuff I just mentioned. Yeah, uh, again, that's why we brought you on, to school us in 
the the history of tennis, and I will say this: I have mimicked Andy Murray right down to the hairline. It is just atrocious <laughs> at this point. Um, but yeah, that, that's an excellent point as well. And you talk about uh, if we, you know, Milos Raonic a little bit. I guess you can go watch more of him. But good luck doing that. Um, yeah, it's it certainly you follow the way these guys are playing, and I do feel like though. You know, Djokovic, Nadal, uh, certainly Federer, you could put them back in time and their games would still translate to that. But, yeah, I, I, you know, moving forward, that's where things get difficult. And, I, you know, I, I know you've talked about this before. You guys just did a top 100 rankings for Tennis Channel of the best players of all time. But when you look at guys like, you know, Djokovic, Federer, and uh, Nadal, what they've accomplished, uh, those are the three greatest male tennis players of all time, and uh, you know, are they not? Well, I think. I mean, to me, I, I, I don't. I I went into that whole uh, week of the greatest of all time, kind of begrudgingly, because I don't believe in that phrase. I, I, sure. I just don't think you can compare eras, and I don't think you can, definitely can't compare genders because it's a different game. Um, I, I really like to choose the phrase most accomplished of all time because I think that that's more quantitatively measurable um, and when you put it that way these three players that are currently playing in this generation will be the most accomplished male players in the history of the game when they're done that I feel comfortable saying what I would say is that I believe that great players of all their generations if you put them in different eras they would have acclimated I mean you can't tell me that Rod Laver, if he played in today's game with the bigger racket, um, with the different strings, if he started his career with that, he wouldn't have found a way to be great. I don't know what that means in terms of definition, in terms of titles, but he was great. He would have found a way to be great. And like you said, if Novak played 30 years ago, Novak would have found a way to be great. Rafa was always going to be great on clay. I mean, picture Bjorn Borg with the rackets that they use today and give him the opportunity to grow up using those rackets, what would you see? I would see a righty version of someone like Nadal um, who would probably almost never lose on clay because he's just better. So I just think when you mix those eras together, it gets very complicated. Um, And that's why when I went through it, I said everybody in the top ten, in my opinion, can be number ones. And I think that all of the, these great players are um, worthy of that. But I, I, again, I love to use the phrase "most accomplished" because it's easier to measure easier to measure accomplishments than for me to sit here and argue with you and tell you that um, you know Rod Laver probably wouldn't have been that good in this era. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't. I just don't buy that. So. Yeah. That, I feel more comfortable in that vein. No, I think that's completely fair, and I'm stealing that from you, if you don't mind. Most accomplished will be <laughs> how I phrase that moving forward, because I like that framing way better. And, you know, in terms of the accomplishments, yeah, for the men's side, Federer, Djokovic, uh, uh, Nadal, what they've achieved, it's just stunning. I also, though, have a theory, and again, tell me I'm wrong if I'm wrong. But and I, And I use a Prince Graphite, so it's not like I'm on the cutting edge of new technology either right now. But you put me and what I know about tennis and just the way I grew up training, even on those surfaces. And I get to use my graphite, but Laver does not. Laver's got to use whatever racket he was using at the time. I beat him 0-0, right? It's just like, he'll be like, you use two hands on your back? And I'll be like, I know, just wait till you hear this invention they have. Like, it's crazy. Just by the, techno- by the technology gap. Yeah, I mean, the technology gap is so huge. That's, again, how do you measure that stuff? That's yeah. why... 
all of these fun things that we're talking about on Tennis Channel are meant to do one thing, entertain and give you folks and fans out there something to talk about. I mean, it's easy for me to give an opinion, but it's, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons why you put men and women together, because I think it, first of all, creates an impossibility in my mind, because it's, it's, you know, they play on two different tours. They're not playing the same people. It's just, it's a different tour. It's a different tour. It's like something that isn't really comparable, and I would never want I mean, if you look at what Serena's done in her career, it's off the charts. If you look what Steffi Graf has done in her career, it's off the charts. Um, but then also, if you look at what Rafa and Novak and Roger have done in this era, that's off the charts, too. Who the heck's going to argue what's better? I mean, you, you can make an argument either way. But I think a lot of it is, like you said, too, I mean, think of the advantages they had. You know, Billie Jean King never got to play with the equipment. Um that, that Serena has. Martina was on the cutting edge, just started to, so did Chrissy, uh, Steffi a little bit with that, but they never got into the Luxalon era of strings. You know, there's just a lot of different things that make it so difficult to compare. Um, and, and I think we're different than other sports. You know, basketball, if you're a better athlete, you're a better athlete, but there's not a lot of other external equipment, right? In basketball, there's a ball and there's a hoop and there's your team. In tennis, you have rackets, strings, balls. Um, it's a very, you know, the surfaces have changed. The speeds of the surface have changed. So there's, I think there's a lot more moving parts in tennis, which makes for a lot more lively conversation and allows everyone to think that their opinion's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's half the fun of any argument, of course. And exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that gets me to something. We're working on this series about who is the best American male player at any given time, and I know you started working with Sampras in 95, so I, I'll ask you about something before then. I was doing research for this, and I talked about it in an earlier podcast this week, so I apologize to listeners for bringing it up, but someone who was there might actually have a better perspective. Uh, Courier from 91 through that Wimbledon 93. I think he started the 92 season something like 45 and 5 and something just ridiculous like that. How I, I because it's so easy now to just talk Sampras Agassi, but how good was Jim Courier as a player? I, I think, you know, I think people don't understand how good he was. I mean, you talk about those starts to, to those years and you talk about a guy that was basically pigeonholed into one-dimensional tennis. That's what everyone said, right? Grinder from the baseline, first major title was at Roland Garros, a couple of Roland Garros titles, a couple of uh, Australian Opal titles. They forget he got to the finals of Wimbledon and the finals of the U.S. Open as well. And that's when the court surfaces and balls and speeds of everything changed a lot. So he had to do a lot of, in- a lot of adjustment to a pretty kind of one-dimensional game yet he got to the finals or better of all four majors. Uh, Jim Courier, to me, is the quintessential champion. I mean, he is a blue-collar champion that maximized his talent and came along in an era of superstars in Sampras and Agassi, and, and Jim made his niche known very clearly early on, but I, I don't think he got nearly enough credit to know how, for everyone to realize how good he was. He was an amazing tennis player, and what I loved most about Jim Courier really was his kind of stick to He was so clear about what his game was and what he needed to do to be successful. And I think that that allowed him to be a very
very straightforward tennis player in his mind, which really helped him in big moments because he knew what he wanted to do in the big moments so clearly um, that all the hard work and effort that he put in really shined through in those big moments, and that's why in those years he was dominant. Yeah, and again, I think youngest guy to ever make the final of all four Grand Slams. He's the only person in history, and this includes Rafa, to hold both the French Open and Australian Open titles simultaneously in back-to-back seasons. Yeah, he was yeah ridiculously talented, and you know to stick in that era because you know I know you were playing throughout the '80s and. I think it was McEnroe in maybe 84 who won the last uh, singles title as an American male. And then, you know, there's that long gap. And when Michael Chang broke through and won that first title at, you know, being as young as he was, but being an American that wasn't McEnroe or Connors, what did that do for the collective group as an American male? I know you won a doubles title during that time, but, you know, singles-wise, did that raise the standard? What did that generation do for American men's tennis? I think it was, you know, I came along in a generation where John and Jimmy were kind of winding down, right? And everybody was looking for the next John and Jimmy. Well, good luck with that. Um, You know, they were just phenomenal superstars. And, you know, Tim Mayotte and and probably Brad were the best uh, Americans that we had in the era after that. And they were both great, great players, but they weren't John and Jimmy. I mean, no one's John and Jimmy. Um, And then all of a sudden... You get Michael Chang as a 17-year-old win the French Open, um, and then Jim pops in there, and then you have flamboyant, irreverent uh, Andre Agassi, and then all of a sudden 19-year-old Pete Sampras wins U.S. Open. So, boy, oh boy, things changed, and, and they changed at a time where it was really a great opportunity for uh, men's tennis to blossom in, in America, and those guys kind of took the reins and just drove it from there so it was really an exciting era yeah no i can only imagine what that's like you know as someone who was born in 95 uh, i i keep thinking you look at this current next gen guy you know the group of opelka of tommy paul francis tiafo taylor fritz you can keep going on and on at guys like jj wolf and ulysses blanche in there as well you've seen fritz up close You've seen Sampras up close. I feel like Fritz is, you know, there are a lot of great servers, but Pete Sampras made it look so easy. And I feel like no one's made it that look that easy until Taylor Fritz come along. That, that's got to be one of the more natural service motions you've ever seen. Pete, sir? Both Pete and yeah. Taylor. Yeah, I mean, Pete's, Pete's service motion is arguably one of the smoothest, silkiest things that... Uh, has been around and and the thing about Pete's serve is his tempo never changed and that's one of the things actually that that's one of the things that Roger Federer has in common with Pete is if you watch them serve every serve looks almost exactly the same the speed of their service motion from when they start to when they make contact and move after they hit the ball it looks and all great servers do that John Isner does it all great servers have that so Pete was to me maybe the greatest clutch server of all time i mean the, that i've seen and and his ability to come up with serves and in particular second serves in moments when it mattered most and to truly trust that and a lot of that was because of the ability to keep that rhythm and timing when people get nervous rhythm and timing tends to speed up and the the rhythm speeds up and the timing gets screwed up and the toss gets off and that didn't happen with Pete very much especially as he got comfortable being great so I I, 
you know, there's nothing prettier than watching Pete Samper serve on center court at Wimbledon. Yeah, without a question. But I will say this for the case for Taylor. He'll blast one 140, and maybe it's just because he's skinny and you just don't expect it, but the pop he can get on serve, it, it's really special. I think, you know, is it fair to say, and again, I know you're working with him, so I don't want to get you in any trouble, but he has the capability, the, the talent, the skills to be a top 10 server on the men, in the men's game? Well, his serve, his serving speed is uh, is tremendous. Taylor's never had a had an issue with serving speed at all. I mean, he can serve huge, but one of the things that he has not mastered yet is that rhythm and timing that I'm talking about that Pete had in big. You know, it, that it doesn't look the same all the time. It does. You can see when his motion speeds up. You can see. Um, you, know, you can see when that rhythm does break down. But in terms of just speed and in terms of the ability to give it a good crack, I mean, he is, you know, he is right up there. I mean, Taylor is, you know, does an amazing job with that serve and with the ability you know, to, um, you know, to generate power um, and, and to generate just incredible heat. And as he gets... As he gets stronger with his legs and with his body, that's going to become more rhythmical. It'll become a, a more fluid, consistently fluid motion. Because it is at times, but then there are also times where David Nankin and I will be watching him and, the, and that speed and that rhythm um, will get, get out of sorts. And, and that doesn't happen with great servers generally. So if, you can, if you're asking me, can he be a top 10 uh, server in terms of power, in terms of effect, effectiveness, sure. I mean, last year he was eighth on tour in first serve points won. I think he won a little over 75% of his first serve points. So when that first serve goes in, he's getting a lot of freebies and he's getting a lot of position. So to me, that is a great foundation to build on. And, and now from here, Taylor's got more, got to get more effective with his second serve and understanding how to use that as not just a point starter, but as a weapon. Yeah, and if I could follow up to that, because you brought up a stat there, you know, eighth more, eighth most first serve points won. I am fascinating to hear because as one of the upper echelon coaches, again, I'm, I'm going to try and flatter you as much as possible. Did I mention you went 51-3 and three in 1984, IKEA <laughs> indoor singles champ? Well uh, yeah, um, but in terms of assessing tennis as a coach through analytics, because at a certain point, tennis is a very uh, it's, you have to watch it to understand it. You have to see people's strengths, their weaknesses, what skills work best for them. And you know, if someone just has a forehand down the line that isn't firing, it doesn't matter if he's playing someone with a weaker backhand. It's like I can't, you, I shouldn't ask you to do that. But I'm curious as more statistics just come become available in life at this point in 2020, how has analytics changed coaching? How analytical can you be? I mean, I'm sure players were always watching film because that's always been something you can do. But in terms of percentages and saying, you know, in game planning, hit 60% of your serves out wide or whatever it may be, what sort of role does analytics play in coaching in 2020? Well, look, I think it's really important to be able to quantitatively measure things, right? I, I, I'm a big believer in that. I, I am also a big believer in understanding why, go, the why that goes behind the numbers. I mean, if you throw numbers out in isolation, you're not really sure why. Like, there are certain times where, you know, Taylor will have a really, you know, you just, Taylor, you know, he only served 
you know, 51% for serves this match, you know, you got to get your serve rhythm up. You know, you talk about missing for serves, and you forget that he's playing Novak. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you have to understand why the numbers are what they are. Taylor, you only won 38% of your second serve points. Well, you're playing Rafa. That's why you, you know, you have to understand the, the reasons behind the numbers because if you look at them in isolation, I think you kind of pigeonhole yourself. I think it's not really fair to the player, and that's why I think the best coaches are the ones that kind of incorporate the numbers with philosophies and strategies, and then they match them to the style of play of their player because that's how you really understand, I think, um, the best way to maximize whatever the player's talents are because it needs, you know, it needs more explanation than just a number. And it needs more of an explanation, hey, you serve hard. It needs more than that, too. You know, you, so to be able to combine the usage of both, I think that's great. And then you look at patterns of success and you look at the numbers that are attached to those patterns of success and that really firms up a strategy and it firms up the, an ability to also articulate something to your player that you can convince them of. Yeah, so you hit it there in terms of pattern. I, I feel like statistics such as first serve percentage, second serve percentage, how many of those points you are winning, break points, how many times you're coming to that, all of those things have been available for a while. But I do feel that tennis analytics have sort of lagged behind, and I'm curious, at the highest levels, are there analytics that track patterns? Is it, you know, I go cross, cross line, I have X amount of percentage success on that? Or is it still very, you know, surface level, like you'd see at, surface level is the wrong word, but at a national tournament, you'll see a mom filming her son's match and taking notes. Is it, you know, is that really the most efficient way to embrace and and use analytics to inform your coaching opinion? Um, Yeah, look, I I, I basically look at a style of plays. You know, I look at at what players like to do and why they're successful, and then I look at how they match up with Taylor and what he's trying to do, and then I kind of try to put the math equation together of how to exploit a window of opportunity if it's there. And if I need to convince him of something, I'll go to stats and details and whatever, Um, but a lot of it is based on really you know, kind of pragmatic success practices, right? What you do, when you do well, what generally happens? And then and then you add that into a player that you're playing against, and you say, okay, how do you plug that in, you know, against the Schwartzman? How do you plug that in, you know, against Fernando Verdasco? That, that's kind of how I do things. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, when you have a training block and you work on everything, that's when you can kind of just go to generic things of trying to improve. Okay. Yeah, no, completely understand. And for, uh, again, uh, you've been so kind with your time, so I can wrap up here. Here's a fun question for you. When you, when Paul Anacone wants to geek out, you get caught in the YouTube wormhole, and you're just, ooh, 97 U.S. Open quarterfinal, I'm in, or ooh, you know, 1987 third-round match at the Australian Open. Um, what is the go-to match for you, your comfort food? What player will you be watching uh, because you, you just enjoy their technique, their game style so much? Well, a lot of things are very fresh in my mind. Um, even my time with Roger, which you know, which was whatever it was, how many years ago was it? Uh, six, seven years ago. I mean, it still seems very fresh in my mind. So I still see a lot of those memories very, you know, very clearly. So every once in a while, I'll be looking to do something 
on YouTube or whatever to do exactly what we were talking about in terms of statistics or someone's patterns, and I'll come across a peat match, you know, and then I'll I'll watch a Sampras versus Agassi match, and and to me, um, that was a different kettle of fish when you saw, you know, two of the greatest players of all time playing each other with just huge um, differences in personality and game style. I lived for those matches just because I loved it. You know, I loved both of their styles. I loved both of their personalities. And I knew what they meant to each other in terms of um, their kind of rivalry. And, And Pete, you know, always said to me, you know, the one thing I love about Andre is that I know I've got to play well, otherwise I'm not going to win, which kind of was liberating for him. It allowed him to just go play. You know, Andre's obviously the, you know, at that time he was probably the greatest ball striker ever, and he still may be. And Pete said, I've got to go for my second serve. I've got to hit targets. I've got, because if I don't, I'm not going to win. So it just allowed him to kind of detach himself from some parts of being nervous and just go out and, and just go for it. And when you saw that, that matchup to me it's like a baseball analogy it was like a great pitcher against the great batter in a world series and um you know so every once in a while i'll get nostalgic and pull up one of those guys battles and just kind of sit back and smile yeah well it sounds like if you have free time later i'm i will ask you to come on a cr classic and we'll do whichever pete agassi match you choose that's you know if we're still quarantined in july and you're really bored and you're like i just i need to you know sure i'll talk to you again alex um that that seems like a perfect uh, july idea but uh, again, we are so appreciative, Paul, of you taking the time for people who haven't read the book, who want to learn more about it, or just follow what you are up to. Where can they find all of your information? Well, thanks a lot. You can go to my website, at Paul, at paulanacone.com. You can also go to iReadbooks, I-R-I-E-Books.com, or um, I believe also on Amazon, and Coaching for Life, and it's kind of a my version of tennis as a metaphor for life and just a journey with a lot of fun anecdotes with some great people and great players. Yeah. Well, again, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time, for teaching us. And again, what is the most you have accomplished? Not the greatest of all time. I'm done with that phrase. I'm keeping that here. Uh, but yeah, thank you. You can, you can very easily say greatest. If, I, if you ever hear me saying it, just know someone forced me to say it. <laughs> yeah, look, again, we'll rag on him here to go full circle. I'll blame Steve Weissman as it's just the Perfect. easiest thing to do. But Paul, thank you so much. Stay safe, stay healthy, and look forward to seeing you on our screen soon. Uh, you, you as well. Take care now. Yep, take care. Hope you enjoyed our conversation with Paul Anacone. I said it at the beginning. I'll say it again now. There are few, if any, brighter minds in our sport than him. You understand why so many top talents have been attracted to uh, having him serve in some sort of coaching capacity. He just thinks through all aspects of the game. There are different levels of nuance for each topic he approaches. It was an absolute pleasure, and again, we apologize for the diminished audio quality, but... 
again, it's Paul Anacone. Speaks for itself why we wanted to play that podcast no matter what. And, of course, we've had so many great guests over these past couple of weeks. People like John Wertheim, Ben Rothenberg, uh, who else? Andy Katz, Steve Weissman, Mark Lucero. I could go on and on and on, but Christian, Claire Liu. If you haven't listened to those podcasts, which you can find on this feed, the mini break feed, of course, see our classics on the GSP. Go listen to them. Like, rate, subscribe, review, share with your friends. And we want to know what you guys think of all these interviews. What do you think of, you know, these guests and the things we talk about? What are your solutions for the way the tennis, the sport of tennis can come out stronger after this crisis? We're all ears at this point. You know, we want to stay engaged, physically distanced, but socially together. That's what I keep saying. It's not my phrase and West off. Don't give me that look. Um, but it's certainly, you know, that's our mindset here is we want to stay connected with all of our friends in the tennis community. I mentioned him there. Shout out to super producer Daniel Westoff for the fascinating job he did on this podcast. Seriously, I <clears throat> I know what you know. The audio quality was not the best, but shout out to him for making the best of it. Again, go check out all of his incredible work on our YouTube channel at Crack Rackets. It's three clicks, fifteen seconds. Everyone has 15 seconds in their day nowadays to go subscribe on YouTube. So be sure to go do that. And, of course, if you've missed any of our content, CrackedRackets.com, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. is at CrackedRackets. You can message me on Twitter, at GreatShotPod. That being said, for our wonderful guest, Paul Anacone, who, again, we thank so much for taking the time to chat for our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westhoff. And from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Take care, folks, and stay safe.